Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Revelation, end times, the Antichrist. Did those words mean much to you? If you're in my age bracket, they might even trigger images from the 70s and 80s of frightening end times movies or self-proclaimed prophets who came on the scene and quickly faded when their predictions didn't work. Well, we promise that we don't fall into that camp. If you've heard some of the messages in this series already, you know we're not giving you wild speculation, only a solid biblical perspective on the glorious second coming of Jesus. Today we're hearing a message called The Day of the Lord, Part 1, The Rebellion. We're going to learn about some very clear, unmistakable events that will occur, and it will be impossible for believers to miss the second coming of Christ. Here's Pastor John with the first half of this message. So the next major event to occur in redemptive history is the second coming of Christ, which is what we call the day of the Lord. And that's what Paul's concern is here to discuss with us, the day of the Lord, Christ's return. So the big question is this, when will Jesus return? When will Jesus come again? Uh, This question has occupied the minds of countless believers throughout the centuries, and this question has been the object of ridicule by scoffers, as Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. He says, the scoffers, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. As we consider Christ's second coming, it's important to understand two things as we begin to look at Christ's return in chapter 2 here. The first thing is this, is that the New Testament deals with the second coming of Christ in such a way as to prevent wild, speculative date setting and also to discourage idle living, discourage ungodly living. So there's a moral point to the second coming, the hope of Christ, the second coming of Christ and the Lord. Now, regrettably, American evangelicals too often learn their end-time doctrine from fiction novels, uh, end-time movies, cable television programming like uh, TBN, uh, the latest events in Europe and the latest events in the Middle East, the Jerusalem Post, rather from the, from the pages of Scripture. Um, wild speculation abounds, and there's no end to examples of end-time date setters and prognosticators. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of the most notorious was an evangelist called Harold Camping. You've heard of him. Um, uh, good old Harold died in 2013 at the age of 92. Um, before he did, he made a couple of predictions. Uh, he predicted that Christ would return in September of 1994 in his best-selling book that was entitled 1994? Question mark. Uh, he was wrong, obviously, because it's 2017. Um, Then, so he came out later with his Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011 billboard. And he put these billboards up, and this billboard, you know, captured the attention of the news media, obviously, the scoffers. (laughs) Um, And so when his prediction failed, he would recalculate it. Um, And he continued to recalculate until he gave up, and then God 
If he was trusting Christ, took him and straightened him out very quickly. Um, There's another example um, in his book called I Predict 2000. Uh, Lester Sumrall, maybe you've heard of Lester Sumrall. He's a famous uh, Pentecostal pastor and evangelist. He predicted that at the year uh, 2000 AD, Jesus would be reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Well, didn't happen. Um, Of all the sensationalist prophetic teachers, perhaps none is better than Hal Lindsey. Um, He is the author of the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Um, This book quickly became the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. Most of you are millennials out there. You don't even know what the 1970s are. (laughs) I was born sometime around there. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you exactly when. Um, But I remember how Lindsay and the late great planet Earth, my dad had a copy of it. Um, And it was translated into more than 50 languages, and it sold over 35 million copies. So that man became quite wealthy. Um, If it was at 20 bucks a pop, you do the math. That's pretty good. Um, He even later made a film version of it, and it was narrated by Orson Welles. Um, But in his book, Lindsay predicted the return of Christ in 1988. And he said that the rapture, the, okay, so-called rapture of the church, right? Uh, The rapture of the church would occur seven years prior to 1988 and 1981. We're all sitting here still, so it didn't happen. Uh, by 1997, uh, Lindsay changed his prediction of Christ's return. He kind of missed it. He had to recalculate like Harold Camping. So when discussing the second coming of Christ, we need to, listen, refuse to listen to these futile efforts. No, just don't even pay attention to them. Um, we need to refuse to listen to these false teachers who attempt to tie biblical prophecy to current events. They hold the Bible in one hand, they have TBN on in the middle, and they have the Jerusalem Post in the other hand. They're trying to make all these wild predictions as to what's going to happen. They make these, they set these dates. So we need to refuse to listen to that useless nonsense. Uh, concerning the time of his return, Jesus himself, during his incarnation, said... Of that day and hour, no one knows. Okay? Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone knows. Just before his ascension, the disciples were asking Jesus, Jesus, is it time? Is it time? Is the glory of the kingdom coming? Is it, is it? And Jesus says to them in Acts 1 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates. The Father has set by his own authority. Don't worry about that, Jesus says. So if there's one thing that the Bible is clear on, it is this. Listen carefully. No one knows the specific time of Christ's return. No one. So don't even entertain these prognosticators on TBN. Just turn them off. Or watch it for a good laugh, but don't 
don't entertain it. <laughs> um, now, with that caution in mind, the New Testament does set forth specific events that will precede the imminent return of Christ. The imminent return means the possibility that Jesus could return at any moment. So we could, it could happen before this service ends, but I'm not going to set a date about that, right? No time limit. It could happen at any moment. But the Bible, New Testament, also says for specific events that will precede this imminent return. Let me give you some examples. In Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of his coming as near, yet he also speaks of his coming as preceded by definite signs, and he gives you some examples. One of them Matthew 24, verse 14, he says that the preaching of the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. There are still people groups in this world who have never once heard the gospel. So there are signs and events that will precede this imminent return. Paul, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, echoes the teaching of Jesus. He tells us both in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, be ready because Christ could return at any moment. It is in an imminent return, yet this return will be preceded by specific events. Now the point of the New Testament having this tension between Christ's imminent return and yet preceded by certain end time events is for this reason. Since nobody knows when the Lord will return, and yet certain events must precede his return, the point of that is that Christians, you and I, should always make sure that we are ready for his return. That's the point. It's not for date setting. It's not for prognostication. It is for being ready It is for, as you'll see in chapter 3, not living an ungodly life, but living a godly life in view of the fact that the judge, the king, is returning. And so it motivates us not to be preoccupied with setting dates, but to forsake idle and ungodly living and to be ready for his return. Second, the focus of the New Testament on the return of Christ, the focus is always pastoral rather than speculative. It is always pastoral rather than speculative. In contrast to a great deal of contemporary teaching on the end times, and there's no end to the books that come out, um, Paul's purpose here in 2 Thessalonians 2 was not to offer speculation about end-time events. Rather, his intent, his motive, was to calm and comfort alarmed believers by correcting false teaching about the day of the Lord that had come from false teachers who had come into the church and shaken their faith greatly. So it's a pastoral point. Um, That's why in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, listen to what Paul says. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, and look, and gave us eternal comfort. This is what he's concerned about. Gave us eternal comfort, and look, good hope. He wants you to have hope. Through grace, comfort your hearts. 
and establish them in every good work and word. That, that leads to chapter 3. Don't be idle. Do good works. Love your neighbor. Go to work. Bless your neighbor. Don't worry about the end time events. Have comfort and good hope. That's what Paul's concern is in this passage. So with that in mind as a little bit of a qualifier, let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to look this morning at the first, um, let's see, um, we're going to look at the first three verses. So the first major issue that Paul deals with in chapter 1, as we saw, was the justice of God in the face of the Thessalonians' persecution. So we looked at, is God just? And Paul says, indeed, he's just. He will return, and he will exercise vengeance on God's, on his enemies and the church's enemies, and he will bring vindication, glorification, and glorify and beautify God's people in his time. But now look what Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, now concerning, so with those words, he's taking up the second major issue that he's going to address in this letter, and that is when the second coming of Christ will occur. Now, let me just give you a couple of background points and some context so that you get exactly what Paul's doing here. First of all, this particular chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is one of the most difficult passages of all of Paul's letters. Um, you know, I sat there all week <laughs> with this going, oh man, I'm just going to shake my head and get up and go take a walk. <laughs> um, it's very difficult. But one of the difficulties is, is for this reason. Look at chapter uh, 2, verse 5. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So Paul is rehashing in a very, very summary fashion details that he had already shared with this church about the second coming of Christ. And I'm just like, well, Paul, why couldn't you have just got to elaborate a little bit more <laughs> about what you told them? Because basically what we're doing is, is we are standing on the outside of a conversation that took place between two other people that we weren't privy to all of what Paul had already told them. So it's very difficult to know exactly what Paul meant in certain places and so there are some things that he says that are very clear and that we can be very certain about, but other places we just have to say we're not exactly sure what he was saying, and so we have to exercise due caution and not speculate. Be very careful here. Um, speculation abounds to many of the details in this passage. For example, the identity of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? And I shared with you a couple of weeks ago as we began this series, you know, when Barack Obama was the president, I would get these stupid conspiracy letters from people saying, oh, we saw on YouTube, the, this guy put it all together, and the, the Antichrist is coming from the White House. I'm like, it's just nonsense. Please, delete, <laughs> junk mail, <laughs> Don't speculate about the identity of the Antichrist. Uh, the identity of what or who is restraining the Antichrist. There are so many options given throughout the history of the church. You could just drop a scroll and read them. <laughs> um, yet, despite many of the difficulties concerning many of the details of this passage, Paul's main point is crystal clear. And that's where we're going to stay. 
So let's look at verses 1 and 2 where Paul identifies this specific issue of concern that he's writing this letter to, to these, these young, young, newly converted believers. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the fact that the day of the Lord has come. So what happened is that very soon after Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and had shared these truths about the return of Christ with them, this young Thessalonian church was plagued almost immediately by false teachers. And that we're teaching these young, impressionable believers that the day of the Lord had already come. And they claimed, listen, to be speaking on behalf of the Apostle Paul, claiming apostolic authority. And so Paul says, these false teachers come to you, and they claim to have a prophetic word, a, an inspired message, which here he calls a spirit. Look what he says. He says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit. Somebody coming into the church and saying, no, I have been inspired with this prophetic word, this inspired message I, by a spirit, and I'm speaking on behalf of Paul. He says, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed by that nonsense. He says, he says another false teacher comes in and claims that, well, someone's received a letter. And this letter is from the Apostle Paul, and, and, and so we're going to disseminate this letter throughout the church under the authority of Paul, and it's going to have these false views, but it's not false because it's under the authority of the Apostle Paul. That's why I look at chapter 3, verse 17. Paul assures the believers that he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it is the way I write. He's confirming them that this letter is authentic because this is his signature. He's saying, but this other supposed letter that is circulating, it didn't come from me. This is a forged letter with false teaching that is alarming and shaking your faith. Don't listen to it. And then he says, but then another comes along, and they said, well, we have a word. I have a word. You ever heard that? I have a word. And this word is from the Apostle Paul himself. While he was still with the Thessalonians, you've just forgotten it, but we've got the word, so we're going to give it to you. Paul says that the substance of these so-called interpretations of the second coming of Christ, whether by spirit, whether by word, whether by letter, whatever it is, was that the day of the Lord has already come, and he says it's all nonsense, refuse to listen to this idle speculation. This is false. This is false teaching concerning the second coming of Christ. Do not entertain it for a second. And this kind of teaching wasn't uncommon in the first century church. Let me give you some examples. It's what's called an over-realized eschatology, wanting everything that's coming in the future right now. It's a very troubling of false teaching. And this over-realized eschatology plagued the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were false teachers who were denying a bodily resurrection 
And Paul had to set them straight in chapter 15, which is the largest chapter in the Bible about the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of believers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, Paul rebukes two false teachers, calls them by name because they were teaching that, there is, that, that Christ had already returned to the church in Ephesus. And so listen to what Paul says. He says, avoid irreverent babble. Remember what I said about the New Testament? When you hear these prognosticators and you see their books, just refuse to listen to their irreverent babble. For it will lead into more and more, listen, ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. It just, you, people just can't, can't turn down the, the alluring temptation to set dates. To prognosticate, it spreads like gangrene and it leads to ungodly living. Paul says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He just, he, he just calls them out right in front of the whole church. These two men in the church of Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Philetus, avoid their irreverent babble because their talk spreads like gangrene. How's that for confrontation? Wow. They have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And because of that, they are upsetting the faith of some. So the result of the false teachers in Thessalonica was the exact same result as the false teachers in Corinth and in Ephesus. These young believers who were just newly converted in the faith were now, soon after, shaken and alarmed in their faith. They had lost their assurance and their comfort. And so Paul is seeking to calm and comfort these alarmed believers by correcting this false understanding of Christ's second coming. Now look at verse 3 and let's see how Paul responds to it in a pastoral fashion. He responds to the false teaching that Christ's second coming has already taken place. And listen to what he writes. He says to them, he says, let no one deceive you. That's what false teachers do in the church. They're deceivers. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, Christ's second coming, his return, for that day will not come unless, look, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So in verse 3, Paul says that two unmistakable, visible, clear events or signs must occur before the Lord returns. And he says that these two events are a great rebellion, which we're going to look at this morning, and then he says, the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And his argument is that these two events will be so visible, so unmistakable, that it will be impossible for believers to miss the second coming of Christ. And his reasoning is, is that since these events have not yet taken place, the Thessalonians, and then you and I today, do not need to be alarmed, but we can take comfort that the day of the Lord has not already occurred and we missed out. 
So that is the clear point. Is everybody with me so far? That's the clear point. So let's look then at this first event. Let's look at this rebellion. Paul's first point to comfort these alarmed believers is that the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion occurs. Listen to verse 3 again. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, right, unless the rebellion comes first. So what is this rebellion? That's what we're going to look at. The word rebellion in the Greek is where we get the English word apostasy. So Paul is speaking about an apostasy that happens. It, is, it refers to a religious crisis of some sort facing God's people, falling away from the truth, falling away from the faith. Paul says in the future that a great rebellion, a great apostasy will precede Christ's second coming. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Day of the Lord, Part 1, The Rebellion. We'll conclude this message next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville on iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time 